Our reading this evening is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who... Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Evening, everyone, if we've not met. Uh, now, um, tonight, then, we're, we're doing something slightly different, breaking um, our sort of normal pattern of working our way through books of the Bible. And uh, so we're pausing on Habakkuk and uh, thinking just uh, as a one-off topic, should we counsel or forgive people? Now, we generally do take a one-off topic at this about round about this time in the term, and this seemed like a good idea at the time when I first thought about it. Um, I think it's interesting, and certainly it's a topical topic, but it's complicated. It's complicated uh, uh, forgiveness. Um, there's a spectrum, isn't there? An enormous spectrum. Just for goodness' sake, just let it go and overlook to horrific crime and. Uh, I don't want to be insensitive tonight, but we're mainly, mainly, I'll use some strong examples, but we're mainly thinking about the, the crazy world of onlineness and forgiveness and cancelling in that sort of arena. So um, uh, forgive me if uh, you're struggling with that on a really big scale, forgiveness. That's not really what we're thinking about uh, tonight, just much smaller. Hopefully that makes sense. But let me pray, uh, and then we'll look at this together. great God and Father, here is a topic which uh, all of us enjoy. We enjoy being forgiven, that is. Uh, offering forgiveness is a bit harder. 
but help us uh, think well, think clearly uh, about this as a topic. Understand rightly, somewhat, we're just dipping our feet in, but somewhat of what the Scriptures have to say about this rich topic and how wonderful the forgiveness offered in the Lord Jesus Christ is. We pray it in his name. Amen. Now, a little while back, uh, Lewis Smith, we may have Lewis Smith, um, uh, four times uh, Olympic medalist, and uh, apparently performed on Strictly, but that's not my oeuvre, but you may know him from that. Um, uh, you know, just a, just a very impressive, successful athlete or gymnast for the UK. Uh, he got into a spot of bother. I don't know if you remember this. So uh, he and a mate had been out for uh, an evening and had had a few drinks uh, apparently, you could still do that and be like an Olympic champion. Um, uh, but um, but been out for a few drinks. Anyway, they came back, and as every 28-year-old or whatever he was uh, would do, they started singing karaoke to Disney songs, uh, him and his mate. And they went through a full repertoire and recorded a number of these, and it got to Aladdin. And uh, I'm no expert on Aladdin, but A Whole New World, if you know that one. Um, I'm not going to sing that for you. Uh, but I think it's the Magic Carpet one, A Whole New World. Uh, yes, I'm getting nods from the Disney aficionados. Um, anyway, his mate, not Lewis Smith, but his mate, uh, was singing along with this. And then he's like, oh, I'm on a carpet. Oh, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And started bowing down uh, and pretending uh, he was a Muslim praying. And, um, <laughs> and how they laughed together and um, thought nothing more of it. Now, I don't think this is right. I think he's right. Lewis Smith didn't post this online, but somehow uh, one of the Sunday papers got hold of it and uh, leaked it and did publish it. Boom. Outrage. How offensive. How offensive. How dare he mock this group in our society? And British gymnastics were like, sugar, now what do we do? Um, and so they gave him a two month ban. Um, which apparently is not appropriate. But anyway, but they gave him a two-month ban. And Lewis Smith wasn't able to... He lost all his sponsors. Couldn't pay his mortgage. Couldn't pay the mortgage on his mother's house that he had bought for her. And as he said, his world collapsed and he needed protection from death threats. Wow. Don't sing Disney. Wow. Should he have been just written off like that? Or just perhaps forgiven? Young lad, had a few drinks with a mate, recorded something just for them. Let it go. That's another Disney song. Sorry, that wasn't Play-Doh. <laughs> serious point, don't make gags. Serious point, don't make, sorry. Um, should he have been forgiven? Or was it right? that he was cancelled. Cancel culture, the best definition I read. Cancel culture, where one group successfully applies pressure to punish someone or another group for their wrong opinions. Sometimes the victim will lose their job or be harmed in some way, merely beyond being disagreed with. So one group applies pressure to punish someone for their perceived wrong opinions. I disagree with you. And in fact, I think what you think is offensive. So you must go. You must be cancelled. Should people be forgiven or cancelled? 
uh, someone in the morning congregation who's a school teacher, uh, happened to mention this in the week to her, uh, her class of 16-year-olds at a form tutor time. What do you do in a form group in a tutor time? Uh, anyway, she just said, oh, we're thinking about this at church. Should we be forgiven or cancelled? What do you reckon, guys? And uh, 30 of them said, cancel. Someone says something offensive online, cancel them. Not okay. But what, what if you get it wrong? What if you sort of crack a gag, but then people think that's not funny? What about that? Wouldn't do that. Oh, right. It's the confidence of a 16-year-old. Should people be forgiven or cancelled when they get it a bit wrong? We're going to think about that tonight. And, uh, I would say three little things. We're going to think about the rise of cancelling. I mean, this is, look, look, this is a half hour, right? We're just dipping our toe in the waters of this. Um, the rise of cancelling, the need for forgiveness, and the power for forgiveness. So it'll take us longer than normal to get to our passage tonight, all right? We'll get there in the last. The rise of cancelling, the need for forgiveness, and the power for forgiveness. Let's think about, firstly, uh, then the rise of cancelling. I'm, I'm sure there's like a gazillion reasons, but let me give you two. One good, one bad, okay? Why cancelling has become particularly prevalent, I'd suggest. One good, one bad. Here's the bad one. Uh, sorry, here's the good one. Here's the good one. To bring justice. That's a good reason. Now, I think generally, historically in the West, we've viewed forgiveness as a good thing. It's a sort of Christian legacy. Um, hard, hard to do, but a good thing to do. Well, I think that's not universally accepted now. Let me give a couple of examples. So, um, I read increasingly that to forgive uh, endorses offences. You don't want to forgive someone when they've done something wrong. Justice is what you want. So a big one was, um, uh, this certainly hit the press with, um, I don't know if you remember a a little while ago, the white supremacist Dylan Roof uh, in West Virginia, uh, a white supremacist, he shot and killed uh, eight people as they exited a church on a Sunday morning. And so the grieving families, black uh, majority church, uh, and so the grieving families very quickly came out and said, we forgive the man. We forgive the man. This was met with a very mixed response. Some people say, oh, it's very impressive that they could forgive. Others don't. Don't forgive. The, the, the gist of it being, so I could tell, uh, black forgiveness of white supremacists just encourages gross crime. So the most striking headline, uh, or the most, in the simple uh, Washington Post, black America should just stop forgiving white racists. Stop it. Don't offer them forgiveness. You families who've lost your children, don't forgive. Don't forgive them. It just perpetuates a spiral of violence. Well, in that sense, you can understand. Is that, does forgiveness just encourage bad behavior? Does it do that? Does forgiveness condone people's sin? I mean, the little story or this account that we have tonight, uh, Jesus forgives a woman her sin. She's living, we're told, a sinful life. She's literally a sinner, ongoing, present tense. A woman comes in who is a sinner, and Jesus says, your sin is forgiven. Well, that's good. But what if she owed everyone else at the dinner party 
a thousand pounds. And they said, whoa, 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 yeah, 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 hold on a minute. I tell you what, before you, before, before that, she's just, before that happens, can she pay us back our thousand pounds? And then you can forgive all the rest of the debts. But like, I don't, I don't want to lose out. Thank you very much. Or worse, what if first century setting? What if this woman beat her slaves, owned a number of slaves, and uh, beat them? Well, we don't want to forgive them. We want justice, don't you? So you can understand why this sort of cancel culture emerges out of, no, no, hold on a minute, we want, we want there to be justice. I think part of it is it's all tied up in this whole area of cancel culture is um, a sort of positive move of uh, voices have been able to emerge to challenge the powerful. So I think probably the, the strongest of all, the most obvious example, the, the whole Me Too movement as uh, s- small level actresses without a great deal of power who, who had no ability to challenge, all of a sudden collectively they could and they could bring the powerful, the Harvey Weinsteins et al. They could bring them to account. Well, that's good, isn't it? The fact that you can go online and denounce and say beyond the pale. That's good. I would think we assume, rightly, that's a good thing. So in that sense, bringing down the powerful, bringing redress, making change, well, you can see why people say cancel. That's what we're doing when sometimes online someone says something offensive. We're securing justice. We're making change. You can see why people think that's a good thing. I think that is a good thing, done rightly. Right? So there's a positive reason why cancelling has um, crept up, I think. What about a second one? Let me give you a second one which is less good. It just makes us feel better than others. It makes us feel superior. I think we recognize that uh, for most of us, we we live at a cultural moment where greater honor and greater moral virtue are given to victims. The the more you've been victimized and oppressed, the more worthy of honor you are. Generally, sort of how things operate uh, at the moment, historically, institutionally, or, or just as an individual. If you've been a victim and come through, your voice must be heard. That's just the cultural moment. And again, there's something very healthy about that. But what if you're the powerful? If you're, like, really powerful, you're not one of the virtuous ones. So then what do you do? What do you do if, like, classically you are a super affluent, middle-class, white, male banker? You've got pots of money. Well, you're not. You've got none of the virtues. So what do you do if you want to be seen as a good guy? Well, you have to tie yourself to someone else's virtue. Let me give you an example. This is, um, well, I don't know what you make of this, but if you're a prince of the realm who's worth, like, a multimillionaire, what do you do if you want sympathy? Well, obviously, you say you're a victim. You've been unloved by your father. Or you campaign for the environment, the ultimate victim in our current world. So you align yourself with the environment that's down at heel. So um, then you must be a good person. 
you align with someone who's oppressed. Or really stupid, or um, the most sort of daft example I can think of. Um, back in 2020, Davos, you know, the sort of summit of the super affluent, is sort of the high citadel of commerce, as, as the, the, the most powerful people in the world gather. Dr. Evil's there, you know, they're all there uh, at uh, Davos, the super affluent. 2020 was a good one. Um, uh, the CEO, obviously, much of it online, but the CEO of Goldman Sachs, pretty affluent bloke pretty affluent institution. The CEO of Goldman Sachs uh, declared at Davos in 2020 that Goldman's would not support a company going public unless it had a diverse member on its board. By diverse meant not a man who was white. So a, a woman would qualify a man of Indian extraction or whatever, or heritage, uh, anyone, just one. Now critics very quickly laughed and said, there isn't a single corporate here which doesn't have at least one diverse person on it by your criteria. So you're aligning yourself with, you're saying, we won't do business with people who don't exist. Um, so very well done, you. But it caused a great deal of, oh, Goldman's, yeah, yeah, good. You know, uh, they're on the side of, uh, of diversity. Well done, Goldman's. The same day he made this announcement, they were fined $5 billion that they'd stolen from Malaysia in corruption and bribes, and some will know the scandal. Oh. Now, what's going on there? I mean, you don't need to be Mr. Cynical. Everyone pointed it out. This great deal of fuss is Goldman's is saying it's pro-diversity. Well, in a sort of absolutely zero sense, because it costs them nothing, and it doesn't stop them doing business with anyone. But it's, they're basically saying, look at us. Like, we're the good guys, yeah? Like, we like diversity. And um, we're, like, we're woke. We're Goldman's and we're woke. Who would have thought it? Just don't look at the five billion we stole, all right? Just don't look at that. Look at how woke we are. I mean, that's terrible. But that sort of thing goes on. So let's, let me borrow virtue from someone else by denouncing another group. Goldman's denouncing those who aren't diverse, a group that didn't exist. Or GB Gymnastics has to drop Lewis Smith to show that it's virtuous. Or newspaper columnists, quite often powerful, influential, decent salaried, if you, uh, you know, in one of the popular press. I subscribe to three newspapers a day. I don't think it does me very much good, to be honest. But um, uh, the idea being, I sort of, okay, what's going on? What are the ideas doing the rounds? And of different political persuasions. Now, it doesn't matter which paper you turn up. I have to say, most columnists are a bit angry. Because sort of, oh, here's an idea, and what do you think about that? Doesn't create a lot of headlines. Anger, anger creates headlines. So that's how it is. And, but partly because you're aligning yourself again with the weak. And so, like one of the current issues of the moment, I, I support those people who are trans because I'm on the side of the vulnerable and pff, upon everyone who isn't. They're disgusting. Well, I don't know about that, but I am on the side of women who, who, who could be taken advantage of by like trans prisoners. So pff, on those who, um, who sort of make it much easier for, uh, for, for prisoners to, to abuse women. Urgh! Um, and you've, you've got to be angry, because unless you're angry, you don't show your sort of, you care enough about the subject. But I've got to align myself with a group that I describe as vulnerable. And it makes me feel good when I do so. It makes me look good when I do so. 
And I think quite a lot of uh, angry cancel culture is, oh, I, I, need to be on, I need to be seen as virtuous, so who do I align myself with? Because I'm actually pretty comfortable. I need to find the vulnerable. I need to find the oppressed and align myself with their cause type of moment. That's the rise. Uh, the rise of cancel. There's a good reason. Pursuing justice and a less good one. We want to look good. Uh, what about the need for forgiveness? Let's move on. Let's construct a more positive case. The need for forgiveness. Two ways, culturally, personally. Culturally, I don't, this is hardly profound, is it? But as a culture, we've slightly, oh, we've slightly lost the ability to just overlook small insults. Um, everything is a big deal these days. So uh, I listened recently to uh, Barack Obama, whatever you make of him, on uh, his good podcast, uh, Pod Save America, uh, which he does. It's a good title, and it's a good podcast, to be honest. And um, he just made the observation, oh, at the moment, sometimes people just want to not feel as if they're walking on eggshells. They want some acknowledgement that life is messy. He goes on to say, look, you know, I'm like, probably considered quite woke as Obama. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's like woke incarnate. Um, he said, but I, I really struggle to keep up with the cultural mood and what I'm meant to say and what's acceptable language. He does, oh my goodness. Um, but you know, we, we know that, don't we? This sort of, oh, do, oh, I'm not saying anything about that issue. I'm just, you know, I'm just bound to get it wrong. Uh, but some of us are stupid and foolish and have a go. Yesterday morning, uh, I took the dog for a walk in the rain, um, for a long walk, and um, came across some people. They were uh, on the Thames, or next to the Thames, uh, setting up a stall. And uh, set up this banner, um, all asylum seekers must be welcome, all Tory scum must be kicked out. And so you kind of know where they're coming from. Um, and uh, they were setting up this stall, uh, and I said, oh, have you got something I can take away and, and, and uh, read? They're like, oh, yeah, hold on, give us a moment. I said, I actually find asylum policy really complicated. I mean, my sister uh, works in the home office in asylum and devising the policy in a manner which is, is, is fair and uh, you know, gets genuine cases in and, and keeps the bogus out. It's very complicated. Only if you're a racist. Oh, my goodness. Why did you even engage? And so you sort of you walk away. I just walked away, sort of, okay, come on, dog. Um... <laughs> Um, you walk away, and I, <laughs> then I told someone this. Uh, I saw later on in the day. I said, oh, I think it's going on. And he said, "Oh, for goodness' sake, you're not going to become a sort of self-loathing nation hater, are you?" No, I, I just. Oh, okay. Right. Note to self: just never mention asylum ever, because you just you just think, "Oh, I just wanted to have a conversation, but I, oh, oh, just say nothing." So Obama go, goes on in, in that interview. He observes, look, I think where we get into trouble sometimes is where we try to suggest that some groups, because they historically have been victimized more, that somehow they have a status that's different than other people. And, and we're going around scolding folks if they don't use exactly the right phrase. And you think, yeah, I, I certainly feel that way. It produces a pretty divided society. Golly, maybe rather than cancelling, a little bit of forgiveness would bring some cohesion of the small scale. Or in the slightly larger scale, 
a few months ago, Desmond Tutu died. Um, uh, most famous probably for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that he set up uh, in South Africa as apartheid. It was dismantled. Obviously, he's speaking as a, a black South African who grew, on, grew up under the horrors of that regime. But uh, the, I don't know if you remember it or uh, if you've read about it, you're probably a bit too young to remember. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was pretty controversial when it was set up because anyone was, an eight was allowed to come. And as long as they fully disclosed, here are my crimes, here's what I did wrong, here's how I beat and here's how I abused and here's how I legally imprisoned. And all. If they fully confessed in front of the victims, they could be forgiven. There was no legal recourse against them. Now, that was quite controversial. No jail, people would say. No, no, no. No, Mandela and, uh, and Desmond Tutu said, no, this is the right way forward. And Desmond Tutu's observation was, look, with, I don't know if he's got, there we go. Without forgiveness, there's no future. What we mustn't have in our country is it turns into the Balkans, where there's a crime, as Yugoslavia dismantled, crime, recrimination, more violence, retaliation, retaliation, more violence. So you've got, we've got to break that. We've got to break that cycle, that spiral. Without forgiveness, we've got no future as a country, was his observation. Unless you forgive, of course, you, you don't allow the other person or the other party, the other side, to change their mind very easily. You don't allow them to grow. If you just throw rocks at one another, then you just cower and you shield and you throw rocks back. But where there's forgiveness, okay, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. You allow people to change, people to grow. So it's true culturally and it's true personally. And one of the things I read over the summer, which kind of why we ended up doing this, was uh, this book by Marina Cantacuzano. It's called Forgiveness and Exploration. She's not a Christian. She's a, a secular journalist who's just spent, I think, 18 years, she said, collecting, interviewing stories of people who've forgiven and, and how they've managed to do it. Uh, it's a stimulating read. Um, I disagree with a number of her conclusions. But uh, I think it's chapter one, or certainly one of the early chapters. She tells the story of uh, Candace Dirksen, who was a 13-year-old in uh, Winnipeg, Canada, who was murdered. Those are her parents. Uh, she went missing. Uh, her body was found frozen in the snows. She'd clearly been murdered. And um, the, the parents, before they knew what had happened, before they knew who the killer was, said, we forgive him. Or them. They didn't know that it was him. Uh, it turned out to be him. We forgive them. We forgive them. Now, this again was met with some incredulity. You, you, you don't know what's happened here. You don't know who's done it. You don't know why they've done it. You don't even know at this stage if there was abuse of your daughter before the, the murder. Why would you forgive? And uh, they say quite strikingly, uh, uh, Wilma, the mother, uh, tells how the fact that the day their daughter's body was found, lots of people knock on their door bringing food, cards, flowers, offering their condolences. He said, one guy who knocked on the door was someone they'd never met. He was dressed all in black. And um, a few years earlier, his daughter had been brutally murdered. And he said to Wilma and Cliff Dirksen, I just need to let you know what happened. I never let go my anger. So along with losing my daughter, 
I lost my wife. I lost my other children. I lost my job. I lost my house. I lost everything because I couldn't let it go. And I don't know what your journey is going to look like. But don't be like me. And as Wilma tells it, it was, she said it was an invitation to a club that you really didn't want to join. And the moment we met that man, we determined we would not go down the same path as him. We would forgive and be able to move forward, not straight forward that. You've got to forgive. Culturally, we need it. Personally, you need it. But let's turn lastly to the power, the power for forgiveness. And here we are in Luke chapter 7. A um, bit long, sorry, on, the, on those. But uh, here we are, Luke chapter 7. And uh, let's get to it then uh, make a few observations. Okay, it's a strange dinner party. So Simon the Pharisee throws a dinner party. Apparently in the culture of the day, you could do that. They're pretty open courtyards, uh, you know. Don't get rain quite like we've had uh, all day today. And um, so, you know, people could see, oh, look, it's Jesus. And so you, you might wander in and think, oh, he's an interesting guy. Let's, let's join the dinner party. So in wanders uh, this woman uh, to join the dinner party. And um, we're told about her, a woman in that town, verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating there. Present tense, ongoing, her life was sinful. So she comes with an alabaster jar of perfume and she weeps on Jesus's feet and, and, and washes his feet and, and spreads this perfume all over her feet. Now that is incredible. It's an extravagant gesture. Uh, perfume is not just whatever your scent is, Calvin Klein Eternity or whatever's popular these days. Um, what do I know? Um, uh, this is expensive. I mean, all the commentators will tell you you know, alabaster jar, it's presumably nard, that is an anointing oil. Like a little jar of that, that's like a year's salary. So essentially she's pouring, I don't know, 30,000 pounds over Jesus' feet. Okay, that's a lot of money to pour over someone's feet and cry. This is a very extravagant gesture. And Simon the Pharisee looks on as a sort of moral upstart, in, uh, uh, upstanding person in the community, looks on and thinks, what on earth is this? Doesn't Jesus know she's a sinful woman? Not defined why that is, but she's a sinful woman. What is going on? And the Pharisee doesn't think that Jesus would have anything to do with it, so Jesus tells the little story at the heart of um, this account. Let me make up a story to make my point, tells, says Jesus. I've got verse 40. Jesus says, or answers him, Simon, I've got a little story for you. All right then. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 50K, 5K, roughly, to translate to today, something like that. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon replied, I suppose, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged rightly, correctly, Jesus said. Three little things, then we're done. First, he's pointing out we're all in debt. We're all in debt. Jesus is trying to get Simon to understand all of us owe a debt to God for our sin, our falling short of God's standard, our selfishness. Simon is saying, what? I, 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 I owe no debt. Yes, yeah, Simon, we all owe a debt. Simon, have you never asked anyone for forgiveness? Have you never done anything that requires forgiveness? 
I mean, if you've never asked for forgiveness, you're either perfect or really obnoxious. You never asked anyone all the things you've done wrong. Then there are the things that people don't know about, the things you've thought about them, the things they've, you've, you've said about them, Simon. Oh, we're all in debt morally. And that's just relating to other people. Then, Simon, what about the Lord, the God who's given you everything? Do you respond rightly to him? Do you thank him in the right way? Do you honor him rightly, Simon? No one does. We've all fallen short. Simon, yes, some it's in gross and obvious ways. This woman is a sinner. We don't know why, but everyone knows it in the community. Your sin may be more subtle, may only be known between you and God, Simon. But we're all sinners in different ways. We all owe a moral debt in different ways, Simon. And that's still the same today. That's still the same for me. And for you, we all owe a moral debt. I think part of the appeal of a modern atheist movement is you're permitted to cancel God. Oh, the, the God of the Bible, he says some nasty things, doesn't he? Somewhere, I'm sure he does, uh, says someone. Um, therefore, I don't have to listen to him. And therefore, I don't have anything to do with him. In fact, I can just ignore him. I can cancel him. Great. That means I'm not accountable in any way. Great. Well, you can declare those words. In the same way, I could say, well, I have a mortgage with Barclays Bank. But, hold on a minute. I think they're institutionally misogynist. Therefore, I cancel them. I refuse to acknowledge them. Brilliant. And now I've refused to acknowledge them. I don't have to pay my mortgage. Yeah, it don't work like that. Eventually, I can declare those words, but eventually they'll come after me and say, you owe, pay up. Well, in the same way you can say, I don't like the idea, I don't like the, the, the God, how he's revealed or how he's described in the scriptures, in the Bible. I ignore him. Right, that's it. I'm free to do it. Well, you can say those words, but eventually there's a reckoning. Eventually you give account at your death. Eventually. So we're all in debt is the point of this story. And there's a cost to paying it, second little thing. So in the story, Jesus says, look, one man owes, let's call it 50,000 pounds, another owes 5,000 pounds, and the moneylender says, I'll forgive the debts. How much does that cost the moneylender? Yeah, well done. 55,000 pounds. You forgive, it costs. That's true emotionally as well. Not many of us are going to pay debts or forgiveness, think of it in financial terms. But whenever you forgive, it is an act of uh, self-renunciation. You give up your right to enact justice. You give up your right to take revenge. Even in small things. Let me give you a tried example. A little while ago, I was a bit miffed. I'd heard that someone else um, had willfully misquoted me out of context to make me sound like I'd said something really daft or rude. So they'd taken something I'd said, removed the context, and said Matt Fuller declared this, and I put it out there. Now that's just, you know, it's just wrong. It's a bit, oh, I was annoyed. Anyway, I happened to said this to my wife, oh, this happened, and look, you know, and others are going to look on and think, really, he said that? Well, what are you going to do, she said. Well, look, it isn't a big deal. 
I guess people who know me will say, he wouldn't have said that. So I'll just let it go. I'll just forgive him. Oh, well done. You're a better man than I thought, said my wife. <laughs> um, about a week or so later, we had some people over for dinner, a couple over for dinner. Um, so, oh, you know, this thing happened the other day, and this guy, and you know, I named him. He sort of misquoted me, so defamed me, attacked my reputation a little bit. And, you know, I was really, you know, it's very unfair. Oh, we're very unfair, they said. Anyway, they left. And my wife said, oh, so you decided not to forgive him? So, what do you mean? Well, you, you said you were going to forgive him, but you haven't, have you? Because you told other people that the guy had maligned your reputation. And in doing that, what did you do? You attacked his reputation in their eyes. So you decided to take vengeance rather than forgive. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Now, let me tell you what the man did and what his name is. <laughs> I would feel so much better if I did. But I promised my wife I'd forgive. Um, <laughs> But that, that's a small thing, isn't it? But every time we forgive, we give up our right to take revenge. We, it's an act of self-renunciation. I won't take what I'm entitled to. I'll pay the cost. Emotionally, reputationally, I'll pay. There's always a cost to forgiveness. But of course, in the online world, I don't... Oh, I shall take revenge by seeing them cancelled. They've attacked who I am. They've attacked my views. They've attacked my identity. Let me destroy them in the online world. There's a, we all owe a debt before the Lord. There's always a cost of forgiveness. The point here, Jesus can pay. Jesus can pay. The heart of the Christian faith is, of course, God pays our debt. Jesus pays our sin. It's, when Jesus dies upon the cross, that's what he's doing. It's not that the debt is ignored. It's not that our moral failings are just pretended away. He pays. The wonder of the cross is that there is justice and forgiveness. There are both there. When God forgives, he is not saying sin doesn't matter. He is saying sin matters enormously, but I will pay. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. Like a moneylender saying, I'll pay 50,000 pounds instead of you. Jesus says, I'll pay for sin instead of you. I'll be judged instead of you. So there is justice and forgiveness. And in this little account, Jesus says, if you get that, it absolutely transforms you. Verse 47, Jesus observes of the woman, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You can see that she gets this. You can see that the sinner knows that her sins are going to be paid for by me because of what she's done. You can tell a person who really deeply has understood what Christ has done for them and paid all they've done for all their wrongs because they are able to forgive others. 
Oh, we make mistakes. Sometimes we slip up. We resolve, I will forgive. But then we don't. Maybe in the small things, maybe in the larger things. But you keep coming back to the same truth. He is paid. So I can forgive. If someone forgave £50,000 that you owed to them or someone else, I mean, you'd be thankful. If God writes off the debt of your sin, which leaves you free from judgment, there's got to be a response. If Jesus says, I'll take hell so you can have heaven, that's got to affect you. As Jesus says himself, verse 47, if you know you've been forgiven little, you love little. But if, like this woman, you know you've been forgiven a vast debt of sin that you could never pay, then you can forgive deeply. Now, I don't know where you're at. Wouldn't call yourself a Christian, young in the Christian faith, but a Christian years. It's still a truth that needs to seep in ever more deeply. The debt you owe is one you could never pay, but Christ pays it upon the cross. If you've accepted that, that is transforming. There is power there to forgive others. Extravagantly demonstrated by this woman in the small things and the large things. That is the power to know how to forgive. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, these are not easy things to do. We pray that we'd understand ourselves rightly and what causes anger and frustrations and where we struggle to forgive, understand a little bit more perhaps what's going on in our culture and the, the anger and the unwillingness to forgive. We thank you that the center of the universe, the center of the whole of world history, is Jesus Christ coming and securing justice for all the crimes committed, every single sin his death can atone for, and yet offering forgiveness. Father, would we embrace that for the first time? Would we embrace it ever more deeply so that we're affected more truly? For many of us, we need that. But Father, would the knowledge of the debt forgiven upon the cross. Transform how we view others and treat others, we ask in his name. Amen.